One of my greatest laments in life is just I will never be as funny as Ryan is. And really, it grates me to no end. Uh, and I have not read the book yet, but we were talking about it earlier. And by the way, it's, where it's build your own Christmas, there is, and we'll have to delete this from the podcast uh, should they be listening. But apparently, choose your own adventure is like tightly um, trademarked and is prohibited for any use. So it's like there were probably lawyers that had to wordsmith all of these types of things. So it, it is a choose your own adventure. We remember that, right? Some of you are dated. I just want to make sure because I grew up in the 1980s and, you know, it was a staple where those were like the books because regular reading sucked. But if I could flip around for pages, it was great. And the thing that we wanted to hone in during this time, you know, Christmas time for us, is that it is an opportunity, a season rife with choices. True? Like, we are all in the midst of these Christmas choices that will suffocate us. I will tell you, of all the times of year, the reason I lament Christmas the most is because of choices, specifically as it comes to present buying, which I believe is the greatest sham ever created by humanity. Because present buying is absolutely the worst. And you might say, no, Steve, hardened heart, Grinch, two sizes too small. It is the best time because it allows us to express our care and love through people by the giving and receiving of stuff. But the problem is, is that there's a scale inherent to that. And at, the, you know, at first glance, it might seem a good thing. But the reality is that it is always a game of chess that you have every opportunity to lose. Because number one, you have to choose whether or not the relationship you have with somebody else is sufficient enough that you ought to buy them something, correct? And the second part is, what extent do I invest in this? What kind of gift do I give them? Because there are choices. Because number one, if somebody gives you a gift and you have nothing to reciprocate, you have lost. However, if you give somebody else a gift and they have nothing to give you, then you have actually put them in a place where they're going to feel worse about not having supplied you in kind. And then the next part, which always grates me more than anything else, is this idea that you're trying to find what is the right size of gift. Because if you go too small and somebody gives you something that's greater, then you're like, okay, I have lost this arrangement. They are a better person than I am because they've gotten me a better gift. Or vice versa, if you're like, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to give that great gift that you know, will really impress them. And then they give you a Christmas card in response you have then maybe won, but maybe you will continue to lose through January, February, March. I'm just telling you, it is the absolute worst time. There's too many choices. Now, for me, to be honest, as much as I joke about this, I'm good. I'm nails when it comes to choices. And by the way, I've started using the past six months the terminology nails as if I'm trying to make fetch happen. And apparently it's not taking on because if I'm nails, I just feel like I'm on it, you know, like I'm you know, I'm holding it all together. I'm nails. So if you hear that, just embrace it and start to use it publicly and credit me later. But when it comes to choices, I'm great at this stuff. Some of you might be horrible and it brings an extra layer of anxiety to your life. And maybe you really resonated with what I said there previously about having to make choices and decisions. And what we want to do is we continue uh, in this series of, of building our own Christmas. And as we're looking at the story of the birth of Jesus, we're going to come into uh, a text about the life of the birth of Jesus where many, many different choices have to be made. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 
And we're going to go through chapter 1 and 2. In a blue Bible in your pew in front of you, that's page 681. And ironically, there is no page number on that page. But it is very, it's easily, it is the beginning of the New Testament. So if you can look in your Bible in the 680s or so, you're going to come on to the book of Matthew. And you're going to see what we're going to do. Because what I want to do is look at how two individuals surrounding Jesus' birth saw their choices and how they embraced them. So we will begin in Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to start uh, here in verse 18 because I want to introduce to you a little bit about the scene that we will be examining. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because her husband Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place. I'll go to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Okay, basic Christmas story issues here, right? But what we're going to start with as we look at choices, it examined the person of Joseph. And and by the way, guys, I've uh, been an ordained minister for over 20 years now. I've preached through Christmas. I always feel bad about Christmas. There's only certain ways you can dissect every story and make it new and vibrant. So if you're like, hey, I've heard this before. Yeah, you have, but you like it, so just take it, right? I'm going to give it to you. But we'll put a bent on it this morning, a little bit of a different bent, because I want to just focus in first on Joseph as a person. Because what's interesting, as much as we think we know about Joseph and he you know, has this domineering position in your nativity scene, the reality is, is that we know very little about this guy. All of the information we know about Joseph is found in the Bible itself. Now what's interesting is if you have your Bible, you look there at the beginning of Matthew and it's always compelling to me where it's just like, if you're a good author, which Ryan very much is, you always start with compelling storytelling to wrap people in. And Matthew says, hey, I'm going to write a story about the birth of Jesus, but let me start with a list because I know how much people love lists but as much as there's this list that begins the new testament and the gospel there's a point to the list that Matthew is making so he is showing a genealogy the familial history of Jesus how it ties even through Joseph himself and the issue here is to understand that Joseph actually has nobility and royalty in his family that Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, and as a result, he had connection to the most prominent king in the history of Israel, King David. But here's the interesting thing about that, is even though Jesus was part of royalty through blood birth, really, at the time, the monarchy was dead, and when Jesus is born, he's born into what is an incredibly modest family. So he has royal blood, but really, and we know this as we read through the book of Luke and the birth story of Jesus, because at the temple, Mary has the opportunity to present a sacrifice on behalf of Jesus, and she presents a sacrifice of two pigeons, basically, and the two little birds are the sacrifice of poverty. So what we know is that Joseph is not a wealthy man. It's not like Joseph is rolling in it because he has kingly background, because at this time, it was inconsequential. So I love this about Joseph is he is actually the textbook definition of an ordinary just schlub, right? Like he's just making do the best that he can, right? It's his call. 
And then he finds this girl that he's, you know, apparently back then arranged marriages were popular. We don't know if they, you know, were arranged in their marriage or fell in love. We don't know exactly how it worked out. But he finds out that his fiance is with child. And he is doing simple first century math and realizes that he is not the father of said child. So what that does for him is it puts him in a challenging situation. For the future, he has all the power because Joseph can say, look, you know, I know that's not my child. I can put Mary in front of charges in front of our religious culture and she could actually be killed because she is pregnant with a child that is not mine. But what is Joseph trying to do? He's like, look, that's, that's not who I am. I, I, I'm, I'm sad, but I'm going to step back. And what happens is we're, we just won't get married and you can go off and maybe stay with your cousin Elizabeth for nine months and maybe start a new life somewhere else with somebody else. Joseph is trying to pull back from the relationship and then an angel comes to him. An angel, right? By the way, I've got my, let's see if my clicker's working. Oh, I do. I just want to make sure. Eh, maybe not. You're going to have to run my life, Larry. That's great. So angel comes to Joseph, and what does the angel say? It's like, look, there's something that is happening here that is beyond your understanding. Is that you are going to be the earthly father of the son of God. And what you need to do is not send Mary away, but to do the opposite, to bring her closer. Now here's the thing that we minimize in the story of the birth of Jesus. Is that even though the angel tells Joseph what to do, he has every opportunity to hit eject. Right? We have seen in the Bible where God has told people to do certain things and yet they choose not to do it. And yet here's Joseph and what, if his, what is his choice? He says, look, because I believe that this is God's moving in my life, I'm going to take her in and I'm going to live life with Mary and I'm going to be the father of this child. So we know little about Joseph except this. He makes a decision. It's a bold decision that had many consequences for him and he chose to do what was asked for him. Now, moving to the next chapter. Keep him moving. Lots of Bible today, but it's all good. You'll feel there. Matthew chapter 2. Is that the next verse that I have queued up? Good. Verses 1 through 6 here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asked them where Christ was to be born in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, and there's actually prophecy there. I'm going to skip to verse 7 here. Um, and let me see real quick. Is that where I stop at 7, Larry? See, I don't have my notes. No, I'm good. Good? Good? Larry and I are teaming together here. You're like, Steve's unprepared. My clicker's not working. It's the clicker of power. I didn't make real notes. Everybody knows that's a bad thing. We're going to roll with it, Okay. We good? Susan, we good? I can continue. Thank you. All right. So here's the thing. We're introduced to Herod. Herod's the other character that's in this story. What's interesting is that as little as we know about Joseph, we know it's just an exorbitant amount on Herod and who he is. And even though we only have a little in the Bible for who Herod is, most of what we know about Herod exists outside of the Bible in extra biblical writings. We know a ton about this guy. Number one, if it makes you feel better because some of you are like, how do we tell if the Bible's true? We definitely know he lived. I mean, he had a reputation. 
He, he, he was a prolific architect. We'll talk about that later. He, he built structures that still survive today. Just parenthetically, if you ever have seen the Western Wall in Jerusalem where the Jews pray to this day, they do that because it was one of the structure walls that supported the temple complex. What's interesting about that wall is that Herod actually built like this, this, this what do I want to say, like a table upon which to build the temple. And that is actually an amazing architectural feat, even greater than the building of the temple itself. Like the stones, when we were in Jerusalem in 2005, the stones were as long as this stage, weighing tons. And yet Herod was able to help engineer and make this thing. He was incredibly well known. Herod's background goes back to what you might know, maybe in Jordan, I didn't put pictures up here, the city of Petra, you know, it's the end where Indiana Jones at, um, you know, when he's riding on the camels when he chooses Holy Grail. Remember that whole thing? Like, that's actually Petra. It's, it's in the middle of Jordan. And his background was one of Idumean. It's I-D-E-I-D-U-M-E-A-N, which is the descendants of the Edomites. And this is important to the story because the Edomites were the most hated enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. Whenever God was just like, hey, I'm cool with everybody except the Edomites. That was the lineage of Herod. So his family was not of royal blood, but they were incredibly wealthy. And as a, as a result, he was around power all the time. What's interesting that we know about Herod is Herod actually hung out with Mark Antony and Cleopatra and backed them in the infamous power struggle for them to be able to take over the Roman Empire. And obviously he picked the wrong side right there. So whereas they met their demise, Herod went straight to Caesar Augustus and was like, hey, look, I backed the wrong horse right here, but I swear I'm, I'm your dude. Like, I'll be a great guy. And Herod was able to talk himself into such good graces that he became the king of the Jews. And Rome put him in charge of the area where God's people lived at the time. So it's very interesting to see this, this identity of who Herod is because the Jews obviously have disdain for him even because he, he's Edomite blood. He's our enemy. Why do you think Herod was so busy trying to build the temple? He wanted to suck up to the Jews. The Romans didn't trust him either because they didn't view him as somebody who could be trusted. So Herod develops this paranoid existence. And we know this from extra things because there's this quote right here is that it's a play on words in the Greek. And we know what's interesting about this quote is that this quote was by Caesar Augustus himself is that it was better to be Herod's pig, which is a hus in Greek, than to his son, his huios. And the interesting thing about this is that the reality was is that Herod loved killing people, not just killing people, he loved killing his family members. Like the dude had 10 wives, which, you know, is status quo, as you could probably think for a man like Herod. But his favorite wife, which if you can imagine, how, how do you arrange that? I don't even know. But his favorite wife was like, I think she's, she's spying on me. I think she's trying to take control. So he's like, I'm going to have her killed. So he kills his favorite wife, which maybe she wasn't his favorite wife. I don't know how all that works out. But then just to make sure all was well, she killed his favorite wife's son just to make sure all was cleared out. He killed multiple of his sons when he was like, they're trying to plot on me. They're trying to take over. So it's this idea that Herod's paranoia, as you read that into what happens in Matthew chapter 2, makes sense as to why when wise men from the east come, he's like, what do you mean king of the Jews? What do you mean you're looking for somebody that's going to rule the people of God? That's my job. 
So he takes this tact that is nice and soft and diabolic. Do I have this next verse, which I love in in verse 8, is that Herod says to the wise men, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Isn't this the type of thing you would see on a Christmas ornament or in some little plaque that you have, you know, like that you're putting in your house right near your manger scene? Like, you know, with like little green and red and stars and stuff. Like this is like, this is Bible verse land and we know how it ends, right? Like, even though this sounds sincere and loving, the reality is, as Herod is like, find me this kid so I can worship him and I will do so by killing him. That there is no, no doubt who this guy is, okay? So win the choice, because think about this. God is speaking to him through these wise people who said, we don't even know where he is. We just know what we were led by a star, brought us here. Herod has the chance to hear God speaking into his life. And his first response is kill, murderous thoughts. I will end the child. Moving forward here, verses 13 to 15 of Matthew chapter two. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And I'll say this too. And so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so by this time, this is one of the most often forgotten parts of the birth narrative of Jesus. Like we just don't even pay attention to this. So in order to escape the murderous Herod, an angel again visits Joseph in a dream, okay? And think about it. Joseph is probably tired of going to sleep now because he knows every time there's something that has to happen, a choice that needs to be made, an angel's going to give him a weird, wacky message. And this one is, go to Egypt, you'll be safe there. Now, for you and I living in the 21st century and modern you know, land, you're like, okay, this is all Bible stuff. Go to Egypt, that's what they do. But understand that this message for a good follower of God was the opposite of what one would choose to do. Because if you look in the history of God's people, Egypt was never a positive place. It was always a place where God's people felt tension because of their enslavement that we read about in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, specifically, and they're fleeing from Egypt when they had the chance to do so. Because Egypt, for a Jew, typified slavery and captivity and and, and being trapped and isolated. That's what Egypt was. And yet an angel is telling Joseph, hey, the next solution to your life is going to be go to Egypt. You'll be fine there. So again, Joseph has a hard message. What does Joseph choose to do with that message? He's like, well, Egypt it is. I don't know where we'll stay with. This is not like when he went from Nazareth to Bethlehem, who's like, oh, maybe I have some family right there, you know, and I'll luck into a stable. Like, he's got nothing going on right there. He knows I'm going to be a stranger in a strange land with my baby, my little Jewish family, but I'm going to choose to do so. Why? Because I believe what God is doing in my life. Now, pause so that we can look parenthetically about this and how it relates to us. 
Because I find often, friends, that even when I'm trusting the leaning of God, it's difficult for me to choose things that he might be putting before me that do not seem advantageous to me in my way of life. I don't know if you feel about this or if you've had this happen. But sometimes we're always like praying for God, open the door. Or, you know, I don't know if you're a little more like me, just like open a, a window, you know, so I can crawl through it awkwardly, right? Like just present me with this opportunity, God, and I will take what you put in front of me. And God says, okay, here's the path. And I'm like, God, if you would speak again and give me another path, I will choose that. Because of our hesitancy to then trust that God is really doing what's best for us. I don't know if you've had those situations. Maybe you're in the midst of one of those decisions right now. And what is gripping you is how do I move forward? I know this might be God's best for me, but it is not where I want to be. And that's where I argue that Joseph is one of the most understated people in all of scripture. Because this is a guy who, you know, really his involvement in the story tends to be minimalistic. But God uses this plain dude when challenged with great and challenging choices, he does what's right. I would offer that it's the choice of submission. Now, submission. Something that you and I might feel okay with, but I would say generally us as good Americans do not appreciate the word submission. Because what we prefer is more active voicing, right? Like what we want is, you know, we want to be decisive and we want to be commandeering. We don't want to be submissive. And in fact, one of the things that I loathe about American evangelical Christianity today is like, you know, in order to be a good man, it's like you, you need to be a man's man and just own up everything, make good decisions. I'm not saying that either women or men have to make good, clear decisions. And sometimes God is calling us to be bold, but sometimes God is just saying, hey, do what I say. Make choices in line with how I am guiding you. Submit. It's not a popular concept, not even just within our country, but sometimes even within Christianity. But if we look throughout the Bible so often, God is just looking for people who will honor him by doing what he says. It's profound, but it's not. The struggle is, are we bold enough to actually listen to what God is telling us and to respond in kind. Maybe that's tougher for some of us, just submission than making choices themselves. But I would say the choice of of submission sits in front of us. Can we go and see the rest of the story here? I forget where we're at. Uh, In verse 16, I might just read it from here. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So this is part of the story why we introduce Herod at this diabolical man because we have to understand is that this is part of his personality. If he was cool with killing his favorite wives and some of his spawn, the idea that he would kill rando kids is not outside of his skill set, right? Now, this is what's even more interesting is he's just like Bethlehem as a a destination is fascinating, too, because I told you that Herod was a master architect. And one of the greatest things that he ever built was this place called Herodian. Now, Herodian 
was a palace that Herod made. Herod made different palaces all over the place. Like he made a place so that when the winter came in Jerusalem and it can get cold and snow in Jerusalem, he, he made a place, uh, a palace out of a place called Masada in the desert so it would be a nice little vacation place away. He, when he wanted to get away from Jerusalem and have a little space, he created another palace right in the hills of Bethlehem, where it was just you know, a short distance from Jerusalem. And, and by the way, the interesting thing about that is, you know, with Bethlehem, what their chief product was, was, was sheep. You know, as David was a shepherd, as Jesus was talking always about being a shepherd, why was the sheep industry in Bethlehem important? Because that's what they needed for sacrifices in Jerusalem. So the distance was not far away. When Herod hears from the Magi, where's the king of the Jews? Oh, he's in Bethlehem. He's like, I know there. I'm familiar with this location. Not only that, it's one of the places that I like to vacation. Next slide, Larry, which is interesting, is that as you're driving through that hilly area in in, in Judea where Bethlehem is located, this is what Herodian looks like. So it wasn't like he's like, oh, I'll build a palace on top of a hill. No, the hill did not exist. He built a palace inside of it and built the hill around it that it still exists today. But at the top, there was a place where you could view. And again, we're in 2005, we were at Herodian when you're walking around it. It's amazing architecturally, but from the top of Herodian, you can view over and and you see just less than a mile and a half away, Bethlehem, the city right there. And in this action of Herod, I always wonder, because we don't read exactly where at this point where Herod is. It's like, is he that type A personality, which, you know, what we know about him historically makes us believe. Was Herod like, you know what, I'm going to leave Jerusalem and get even closer to Bethlehem. And perhaps as Herod gives the order to kill these babies, he is standing from his perch on the palace watching guards go from house to house to drag babies out in the street and have them killed. Why? Because that fits who he is. And it fits his MO on who he was and how he saw his life being. I would argue that Herod takes the choice of sovereignty. Now remember what we talked about this, is Herod does not actually have royal lineage and blood, but he is trying to fancy himself a king. And in doing so, you try to act like a king. And that's where we see this idea of sovereign, right? You can see etymologically the word reign in the midst of that. This, is, this, this means us harnessing our control and power to be used as we deem fit. And that's what Herod wanted to do in his life. He said to himself, the most important thing in my existence is to continue to prove myself and consolidate power. And that happens by eliminating the threat of all rivals, including if it's a two-year-old baby boy. So that's the massacre of, of, of these kids, right? It's, it, it's this idea that he's like, I will go out and kill as many babies as necessary to make this happen. By the way, just parenthetically, as people have always argued, you know, how many kids were killed? Because some older text says, oh, it was thousands, even as high as tens and thousands. Reality is if we look at population modules, because we can see how many people lived in like that Bethlehem area during the first century. It was probably somewhere between, you know, eight or nine to a couple dozen at the most you know so you're like oh well maybe it wasn't that bad but then maybe you're like no it was obviously that bad because killing even one child to consolidate sovereignty seems insane and yet Herod was willing to do it many times with kids who were just happened to be born in the wrong place at the wrong time he's exuding his sovereignty he wants to be in control Now, as I am a good 
communicator of the Bible, and I'm very skilled at putting guilt trips upon people. It's one of the skills required for this job. Nobody wants to think, well, I'm just like Herod, but let's be honest. Quite often, there are times in our lives where we're just like Herod, true? There are times when we try to consolidate what we want in life because I want to be in control. I want to be able to make the decision. I want to wield the power. And in doing so, I choose the path of sovereignty. I think that was, that's what lies before us, right? This is the choice of this, whether we choose submission or we choose sovereignty. So understand that in your life is that you have Joseph, who I would say, you know, he might be somebody that we ought to model our, our decisions on because what? God says to do something. He knows he has the decision-making ability and prowess to decide, decide and determine what he wants to do, but he does what God says anyway, or we can be like Herod who knows maybe what the right decision is, but does not give a rip, is going to do what is best for him. The choices that stand before us. So now, if I'm wrapping this type of up in a nice little Christmas bow, if you shall, I would say, well, who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Herod? Or do you want to be a Joseph? But here's the issue about this dichotomy right here, is that it is a choice that was masterfully made by the baby who survived, by the one whose father, earthly father, took him to Egypt and who grew up to be the man whose teachings that we cling to today. Because if you think about that choice of submission and sovereignty, that is actually what Jesus was able to do. He was able to merge the two of them and somehow masterfully mix both his sovereignty and submission. That's why I always return, I, almost always, and again, if you've been at Echo a long time, you're like, Steve loves himself from Philippians chapter two, and that's true because it is so poetic and artful and explains so much about who not just you and I need to be, but who our savior is. But we read the story of Jesus that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, made in human likeness, found an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The the beauty of Christmas season is obviously the perfect baby nestled in a bed of hay in a manger. But at the same time, it's the recognition of why that baby's birth was so significant that illuminates everything about this season. And that is the idea that Jesus was God himself, sovereign, enthroned above, creator of everything, the one who makes it all together. And when we screwed things up so bad, he said, the best choice that I have to make is to leave my throne and go and live among them. And not just to live with us, but to submit to life as a human being, which sucks, amen? Like as much as there's good stuff, Would you choose this or you're like, no, I would rather be a God. I think we would choose the God option, not the, not the, I can't sleep at night. So I'm having to self-medicate, not the, I have no idea what I ate yesterday, but it is not handling well in my life today. Not the idea that I am interacting with human beings, that if I had the sovereignty of Herod, I would exercise my authority. I have this existence down here. It is not prime and yet God chose to do it himself and to become obedient to death but not even obedient to that but to death to say I will submit to the result of the sinfulness of humanity because that's what's best for them
And that, friends, is the tension of submission and sovereignty. Not that you and I have to make that choice, but the reason that that choice is somewhat irrelevant at times is that we have the chance to be saved by the one who took it all upon himself for you and for me. That is the beauty of this time of year. That is why we pay so much attention to these stories. That is why we worship the one before us. So I love this idea that during these weeks as we've been you know, focusing in on the birth of Jesus, that we conclude our services with communion which is something that we do every week here at Echo, but it is the reason and the purpose behind the why of what we do. These stories are important and they hold meaning to us because we believe that this birth was no ordinary birth. We believe that this death was no ordinary death and we believe it resulted in resurrection, life anew, changing eternity for you and I. It holds weight and significance because Jesus made a choice 2,000 years ago that will benefit us not just today, but throughout all eternity. And that's why we're here. And that's why we worship. So as we transition from manger to cross, we're going to have this time of communion. If you're here this morning and a follower of Jesus, we're going to invite you to participate. If not, feel free to sit and contemplate maybe anything that we've said during this time. The band's going to come up. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to pass around the trays of bread and juice. And at your own leaning, we just invite you to come and to partake. Or as as the trays are passing you, to partake and to contemplate this concept. That we serve a Savior who made a bold, bold choice for us. I'll pray. We'll commune. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. As the wise men came to the manger scene and offered gifts to them, so too we right now offer our gifts of love and praise at your feet, understanding, Father, that the baby became a man, a man who lived life perfectly and who selflessly gave all so that we might dwell with you for eternity. It's so powerful, God, and yet we struggle with it. Help us as we process these choices that you put before us, not just now, but in the weeks and months to come. Help us to process well and to see our role as one of submission, where you are enthroned, where we are not, that we sacrifice any leanings of sovereignty because you, God, typified what it means to set power aside and to let love reign. Humbly we come before you as we commune. We praise you for your sacrifice. Through the bread and through the cup, we celebrate and worship you, the risen King. Amen.